All right, um, please turn with me. We are continuing our study in Matthew, the book of Matthew. We've been walking steadily, progressively uh, through this book. We started with chapter 1 about like last, I think it was November we started in, in Matthew. Uh, we're now in chapter 14. Chapter 14 of Matthew. It's, Matthew's awesome. Um, it is really awesome. And one of the things that you hear a lot about, and we're going to again hear about this today, is the kingdom. The kingdom of God. Does anybody remember what the summary phrase is for the entire book of Matthew? Anybody? Anybody? The kingdom of God is at hand. Yes. Hunter. Wow. Okay. Okay. Impressive. Wow. Well, well done, sir. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, Jesus is saying, I've got to move over a little bit. This thing keeps, screen keeps getting in my face. Jesus is saying, the kingdom's here. I'm bringing the kingdom. Through my inauguration, my incarnation, being born into this world, but also through my ministry um, and service to people as I do this ministry. So we're going to read about a story about one of um, Jesus' miracles, actually. His, what, it's not a kingdom miracle like we read about last week, but we're going to start with chapter, uh, chapter, verse 1 of chapter 14. So if you want to read along with me, turn there now. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It's not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, and he he wanted to save face, he ordered that her request be granted. And he had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples then came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men besides women and children. You may have heard this story before. I don't know. If you've ever been around church before in your life, you may have heard or at least heard it alluded to this, this, this miracle of Jesus where he feeds the 5,000. He feeds, or it's probably as you 
saw there in the passage, it's probably more than 5,000, right? 5,000 men, but they were saying there's probably women and children there too. So we're talking in the ballpark 10 to 15,000 people. And they had five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, before we get into the mechanics of this miracle, I want to I propose something. That I think what's going on here is what I would consider to be a power struggle. And I'm going to explain as I go further, but um, this whole passage, this whole section right here is about power. It's about power. It's about Jesus' power. It's about the power of Herod the Tetrarch. It's about the power of the kingdom. And I'll show that uh, through several different points if you're a note taker. Here's how the points are going to be shown about this power. The first thing I want to talk about is the fact that we love power. We love power and we hate when we lose it. That's number one. The second thing is, the Israelites or the Jews of Jesus' day, when this was written, they are, they're normal people and they love power too and they hated when they, they, they lost it. Uh, and then the third thing we're going to look at is how Jesus subverts our ideas, their ideas of power. Jesus totally subverts it. And then lastly, we'll look at how Jesus calls us not to take power, but to give it away. Jesus calls us not to take power, but to give it away. So first, we love power. (laughs) We do. We love power and we hate when we lose it. Now, that's such a, it's kind of a theoretical term, right? So let's make it a little more concrete. We love most of all the things that power gives us, right? When we're in a powerful position, we usually have money. We usually have status. We usually have control, right? When you have power, over anyone or anything in your life, you feel like you have some level of control over that person, some level of control over that circumstance, and there's a feeling of of security that comes with that. There's a feeling of of wellness, of well-being that comes with, oh, I've got plenty of money, I've got people who want to be around me, Um, I have status, I have recognition, I have respect. And these are all things that we crave. We love power. One of the websites that I check regularly is called Mac Rumors. It's really nerdy. It's for mostly Apple products. And um, one of the things, and by the way, there's a big announcement coming up this week uh, for Apple products. Did you know the the iPhone X apparently is coming out? I'm super stoked about it. Anyway, but I won't be able to afford it. But nonetheless, one of the articles that pops up frequently on Mac Rumors is articles about Tim Cook, who's the current CEO of Apple. And it's always him with the Prime Minister of India, and they're like shaking hands and smiling, oh yes, we're good, we're good buddies. You know, or it's him with, you know, chumming it up with Obama, or, you know, hanging out at the White House, or, you know, they're rolling out the red carpet in China so that he can walk through. You know, I mean, you want to talk about someone who's got some status and power and incredible wealth? In fact, here's a good example of what I'm talking about. There was an, a fundraiser, there was an auction, where you could go to Apple Park and have lunch for one hour with Tim Cook. And you could bid on that. One hour lunch with Tim Cook, CEO of Apple. You know how much money the person who won that auction paid to have a one hour lunch with Tim Cook? Guess? $680,000. That's a dude who can easily get some friends and get them really quick. But the reality is, we love power because... If you think honestly about it, we love that the, the life that it gives us. And I don't just mean life, meaning like, you know, breathing. But the life that, that, it, can, that it can provide for us. The sense of, of quality, the sense of peace, the sense of joy, of knowing I am important. I'm important. 
just feels so good. Um, and then we also, another point that I wanted to bring up about power, it's so valuable to us and it's so, it's so natural to us that we don't, we don't even recognize it. We don't even recognize when we're going for it or when the people around us are going for it. You know, I was tired of a conversation this week on the downtown mall with somebody, and this lady was like, ugh, I get so frustrated. My boys go outside. They, like, pick up sticks, and they immediately start pow, 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 acting like they're guns, you know, and she's like, I'm against guns, and I'm against, you know, I'm big gun control. She's like, but my boys go outside, and they're like, pow, 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 every stick they pick up. And I was like, that's natural. It's normal. You know, and she's like, I know. It's natural and normal because... A boy, when he goes outside, he wants to have something in his hands that's going to give him that little extra bit of power or a feeling of power, right? A gun does that. That's what a gun gives you, right? When you have a gun in your hand, you feel powerful. You're not any more strong than you were before, but you just have this this tool in your hand that's powerful. Now, it's a little bit different for Lyndon. Lyndon doesn't walk outside and pick up sticks, does she, and turn them into guns. Lyndon just knows with her daddy, she knows exactly what to say, how to say it, and how to look at me when she's saying it to get exactly what she wants from me. She does it all the time. And Christy is like, Nathan, can you not see it? (laughs) Hello. But I mean, the reality is our desire for power starts when we're a child. I mean, one of the big things they talk about at Hunter School is bullying. You know, there's power struggles even at this young age, this elementary school age. Starts when we're young. It, It begins to sort of blossom when we're a teenager, I don't know if you guys uh, know any teenagers or have had any teenagers, uh, but, you know, they, they don't like to be told what to do. <laughs> I certainly didn't. When I was a teenager, I was trouble. <laughs> Just good luck trying to tell me what to do. Uh, I was a jerk. I mean, let's, let's call a spade a spade. I was a jerk. But then it really comes to fruition in adulthood, doesn't it? You know, it's something we watched. Um, you know, perfectly, perfectly good example a month ago here in Charlottesville, the rally, right? You want to talk about a power struggle? Power versus power. People trying to finagle themselves, trying to think they're better than another group or whatever, whatever uh, kind of power struggle you want to call it. But we also see it every time we turn the news on. We watch it when, we, when Trump tweets. You know, or you see it any time that you uh, hear about North Korea and their new pants. They're, they're, they're fronting, right? They're trying to show that they're a powerful nation, which they're not really, but they like to show it. Okay, I think that's enough examples. <laughs> I think you get the picture. We love power and we hate when we lose it. Okay, one more example. Um, I remember one of my previous jobs, I was uh, reprimanded for bad behavior at my job. I was an employee. And one of the things that the, the board did at, my pre- at one of my previous employers was they decided that, that to get me under control that I would need to sign a document. So there was a document crafted just for me that said, you will keep your mouth shut, (laughs) you will keep your head down, (laughs) and you will go about your business. And so I was like, all right, I do want to keep the job. So I signed it. Uh, It was an awkward moment, as you might imagine. And it was really, 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 really hard because I didn't want to lose my power. Now, that's exactly what's happening here in this passage. That's exactly what's happening. Okay, see, the Israelites, the Jews, at this time, Matthew chapter 14, they were feeling powerless. They were under, the Israelites, the people of God, the Jews, were under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And we have a supreme example of what it felt like to be under the thumb of the Roman Empire in the story about John the Baptist. Right, John, think about it for a minute. 
John the Baptist is put in prison just because they didn't like him, just because he was preaching a message that was slightly against the empire, right? He was t- teaching about repentance. He was teaching about these things that, that, that he was teaching people to not go for power, right? And then, not only that, he gets into the, he gets into the court. He gets into the court and he says, he tells to Mr. Powerful, he says, you, are, you're, you can't do that. You're sleeping with your brother's wife. This is bad news, man. I don't care if you're an important government official. You can't sleep with your brother's wife. And of course, he's a man of power. And so he says, squish, right? Now, he didn't actually kill him. He just had him in prison. But as we find out from the story, his, the, Philip's wife, the, the woman who he was with, she's like, I want this guy shut up too. And so she, you know, her daughter is dancing for the king. And, or he's not a king, but the, the, the tetrarch, dancing for the tetrarch. And he says, okay, I want, she says, I want the head of John on a platter. So they kill John. So just imagine, okay, so there's the story. Imagine what that would feel like if you were an Israelite. If you had been a follower of John the Baptist or a follower of Jesus or you were, or you were just in that nation at that time. It would be a gut punch, an absolute gut punch. And in fact, we see Jesus going out into the wilderness right after it, right? So Jesus hears the news about John, this awful, tragic news about John, and he immediately goes out into the woods. And he goes to be alone with the Father. He goes to, be, to pray, to reflect, to be with him. Now we might expect, and this is, we might expect, but, but even more so, the Israelites of his day, their expectation was, let's do something. Time to fight back. Right? Time to do justice. Jesus, justice. This is ridiculous. So in the wilderness that he went into, there, were what, there was a, an entire group called the Zealots. And so there would have been a huge amount of Zealots in the crowd that he does this miracle with about the, the feeding of the 5,000 with the loaves and the fish. There would have been a ton of Zealots. Zealots were Jews or were Israelites of the time who really wanted to overthrow the Romans through violence. And so we find, if you turn real quick to John, turn with me to John, chapter 6, verse 12. The, the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 with, with the five loaves and the two fish is recounted in every single one of the um, Gospels. So you find it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And here's the version in John. And it's a really interesting ending to this version. Verse 12 and when they'd eaten their fill, that is of the, the bread that Jesus had been passing around, and when the people had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people, and I'm guessing a lot of zealots were in this group, when the people saw the sign that he had done, that is Jesus, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He wasn't having it. They literally, this, this crowd tried to, tried to come and by force, forcibly, violently take him, make him their king, and march in on the Romans. But Jesus doesn't do it. It's interesting, strange, a little bit shocking. I'm, and, and as we know from the reaction of many of the Israelites and Jews of Jesus' day, they absolutely rejected him. They said, forget this. If you're not going to lead us in a national rebellion, forget you. Because I, we don't know what you're doing if you're not doing that. Well, Jesus is like, I am doing something. 
I'm doing something incredibly important. I'm bringing the kingdom of God, and it's actually going to subvert your notion of power. And so he sits them down, and that's what we're going to talk about as we, uh, our third point. Jesus sits them down, and he says, listen, let's have a meal together. They're on the grassy field. In each version of this miracle, it recounts how the people sat in the grass. And Jesus, Jesus and the disciples are like, oh, we've got to get some food. You know, there's this humongous crowd out here. 15,000 people in those woods would have been everyone. Like everyone from every surrounding village would make up that crowd of 15,000 people. So it's a humongous crowd. And, he, and what does Jesus do? He doesn't froth them up. He doesn't try to get their anger riled against this oppressor. He starts teaching them about the kingdom, about the gospel. And what is that message? What is the gospel kingdom message that Jesus is teaching them? Well, we have a humongous clue in the fact that he breaks the bread and there's pieces of the bread. He's teaching them about the fact that he is the bread of life. And because he is the bread of life who provides for his people, he's saying, look, y'all, you think you know what you need. But I am a provision that you didn't know you needed. Or at least, I'm a surprise provision. And I'm going to fulfill you in a way that getting revenge never would. I'm going to bring life to you in a way that you never thought was possible. Because again, I go back to the first point. Again, all the the people that were there were thinking, okay, if we just get some more power, we win, life is good. Life is good. And Jesus says, that's not where you find life. The word that Jesus uses for life over and over in the New Testament is, is the Greek word zoe. The translation we have in most of our English translations is eternal life. Eternal life. And it doesn't just mean life that keeps on going past death, though it does include that. It means something much larger than that. It means true, utter fulfillment at the core of your being. True and utter fulfillment at the core of your being. That's what zoe is. And Jesus is saying, you think if you get power, you get zoe. We do too. I do this. We do this. We, we, we carry this around with us on a daily basis. We think if I get in the right circles, if I get the right grades, if I get the right job, if I get in with the right people, if I, if I can just get, 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 if I can just take, 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 I can finally maybe, maybe reach that point of deep inner fulfillment. I'm okay and the world is okay. And Jesus says, you're not going to find it there. You aren't going to do it. He, he, the reason is because he tells the gospel. He says, I am going to be broken for you that you might be reconciled to the Father. And only in that place are you possibly going to find Zoe, true life. How? How? Why? Why does it come in that way? Well, Jesus is talking to them and he's saying, the solution to all of your problems is not more money, a better job, a better family, more stuff. The solution to all your problems, according to Jesus, is the restoration of a broken relationship. The restoration of a broken relationship. You see, when you have power and you get all the good things that come with power, security, you know, a sense of control, a sense of well-being, it never can match or get even close to the sense of well-being that comes from the king of the universe, that is God himself, looking down upon you because of the sacrifice of Jesus and saying, that is my beloved daughter, that is my beloved son. That, that gospel message, if it works its way into the depth of your being, will change absolutely everything about your life. 
here, and, and this is what Jesus is trying to teach not only the disciples, but the people who were there in this crowd, and I would say us even today. And he's, he's teaching that if you get that reconciliation, if you get that level of well... Or here's, here's another way to put it. This is from a commentary. This miracle typifies the full and complete blessing of humanity in the meeting of human need and the experience of ultimate well-being, universal shalom. It's what we all long for. It's what we were created for. And it's what we almost never experience on this earth. We, we know. We watch it all around us. Violence. We have, we have conflicts of our own with our own family members and friends and people in town and different viewpoints. And we, we've so rarely experienced true shalom. And Jesus is saying, this, the way that you get it is the gospel. And it comes through reconciliation with the Father of Him looking at you and saying, you are my beloved. You are my beloved. You, you are okay. When was the last time you felt that? You're okay. Like, right now, in this moment, not when you get your act together, not when you get things cleaned up, not when you get fixed, not when you reach the next plateau. You're okay. That's what God says in the gospel. You are beloved and you are mine. And Jesus says, when that zoe gets to the core of your being, there's going to be a radical transformation that happens with your view of power. And that, that's what he's trying, again, that's what he's teaching as they're sitting in this nice, beautiful, grassy field. He's saying, you will discover for the first time maybe ever in your life that you can begin to give up power. You can begin to give away power. Why? Because you've already got what you need. Right? Think about that for a minute. Think about it. If you already have what you need, that sense of true shalom, well-being in the core of your being, you are able to say, I don't need the next position. I don't have to hang out with the cool circle of people. I can hang out with the person at the bottom of the rung. I can go to places where my name is not going to be recognized. I can begin to do things and love people in a way that is never possible as I strive for power. Because when I'm striving for power, I'm looking to use other people. Right? I have an agenda. It's a means to an end. Rather than just pure, true love for the people around us. Now, one of the best examples, I think, of this that I've ever read, and I've used this example before because it's so powerful to me, is this author, professor, named Henry Nouwen. He's wrote some incredible books. He wrote one about the prodigal son. I highly recommend it if you ever get a chance to read it. But he made the conscious decision to give up his academic post, to give up the accolades of what all his authoring of these... He's written many, many, many books, excellent books. And he goes and he lives in this community uh, connected with this group called Labrie. It's basically like a version of like a Christian commune almost. And he goes and lives there. It's only for people with special needs. And he talks, he recounts, uh, it's called the way of the heart. He recounts the story of what it's like for him to, to begin to live in this community and work with these people who have special needs. Because he says, they don't know or care about anything I've accomplished in my life. They're not asking me. They only know me in the moment of today. What am I doing today? How am I loving them in this moment? In this very moment? They know nothing about how I'm a famous author. They know nothing about all of my awards as an academic professor. They, he gives it all up. 
Because he's learned that the way of the heart is that I get Zoe from God alone and not from my position on this earth. The supreme example, and it's alluded to by Jesus in the fact that he breaks the bread for the people and feeds them. The supreme example is Jesus himself. He's the ultimate example of being so deeply connected with the Father, constantly communing with the Father, constantly letting the Father speak to him about the Zoe that he has, that he, act, he goes the ultimate, he makes the ultimate sacrifice. He not only leaves his glory in heaven and comes to earth to be with us, but then he, go, he willingly sacrifices himself to save us. It is the most incredible picture in all of the universe of giving up power for the sake of others. Giving up power for the sake of others. In just a moment, as we conclude uh, the the sermon, we get to visibly see in this meal right here, again, Jesus is foreshadowing this meal in the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. He's foreshadowing, I'm going to be broken to pieces for you. That is the gospel message. I will be broken to pieces for you so that you can be whole so that you can finally find Zoe, so that you can finally be connected to the Father in a way which brings that ultimate well-being and shalom that you look for every day, every moment that you wake up and you begin to search for happiness. I will provide it, and I have provided it. So as we come to this meal, I hope that you can be reminded that it's not just theoretical, figurative, it's not just this neat little concept in the Bible, that the body of Christ was broken to pieces for you. It was broken for you. So that you might be reconciled again with the Father. Now I would ask, by way of application, where do you need to go? Whatever, I don't know if it's a friend group, or it's at work, or it's at, in your neighborhood, where do you need to go and lose some power? Where have you been fighting for it? It's it's a great application for us, especially as we live in Charlottesville. You know, many of us are in positions of power. That's how we were born, even, to some degree. And part of the true loving of your community, the true giving to your community, and this goes across racial lines, as you might imagine. This goes across socioeconomic lines. Where is it that you need to give up a little bit? That you need to go to the place that you're scared to go and be with those that may not be in the same position. It's a powerful message for anyone who thinks, I've got to hold on to my power, which again, is the message of white supremacy. It's we've got this, we think we have this power in this place, and we're going to fight for it violently. It is, it is, it is destructive, and it's of Satan. It's, it's hellish. We give up our power for one another and for those around us. Let's pray. Lord God, um, I long so deeply to have that well-being, that sense of well-being in the depth of my soul, Lord, where I can begin to give up my power and not have to feel like I've got to do the next big thing or make the next big move or impress the people around me, show that I'm something special and something important. Lord, I pray that for all of us, I pray for myself and for all of us here, that you would show us how incredibly important and special we are to you and that that is the most important opinion in the universe. Lord, I pray that out of that would flow 
a giving away, Lord, a, a true love for the people around us, for children, Lord, for those that are lower than us, those that are smaller than us, those that are hurting around us, Lord. I pray that we would be a people that have hearts of compassion, just like you are a shepherd to those without a shepherd, Lord. I pray that we would be the same, Lord, for the communities around us, for the neighborhoods around us, for our workplaces, Lord. We need your shalom, Lord God. I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would give it to us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.